Welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning in tonight for our School Psych Podcast. Really excited for a great discussion. Uh, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk about how you can participate if you're watching live tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Florida. And tonight, I hope you're able to tune in live. If you are, you can log right into your YouTube account and you can comment alongside the chat, alongside the video. And even if you're tuning in a little late and watching, um, not exactly live, but live-ish, your comments will sync right up to the right place in the video. And even if you're watching the recording. So please, whenever you're watching on YouTube, please feel free to comment, add your thoughts, your questions, because we can continue that conversation over time. And also if you want to send a more, um, communal message on social media. We love that too. We love our conversations on School Psyched podcast page on Facebook or School Psyched, your school psychologist. You can post right under the um, post for this uh, tonight's episode, or you can message, um, inbox us. I'll be looking for notifications. And also if you're on Twitter, um, if you're still hanging in there on Twitter, like I am, you can use the hashtag Psyched Podcast and tweet at us at at podcast site. Those are all the ways you can collaborate and communicate with us. And we're looking forward to hearing from you. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who will introduce himself and our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, my name is Eric Elias, and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And we are excited to have Dr. Ray Christner here with us this evening. And uh, just as we were chatting beforehand, I was noting that uh, Dr. Christner spoke at one of the NASP summer conferences that I attended, and I really appreciated everything he had to, to say and uh, sort of gave us a, a wonderful sort of grand rounds case conceptualization talk, and we were able to, um, you know, to glean a lot of information. So, um, Ellen, we have one of our listeners already uh, as well as uh, uh, a TA, former TA um, for Dr. Christner. So I'd like to tell you just a little bit about Dr. Christner, and uh, then we'll get started talking about interventions and cognitive behavior therapy and, and uh, anything he would like to share with us. Um, Dr. Christner uh, is founder of Cognitive Health Solutions in Pennsylvania. He provides a variety of services to patients, um, including psychological testing, psychotherapy, and consultation. He's a licensed psychologist and a licensed professional counselor in Pennsylvania. He is recognized on state, national, and international, on, and an international level as he's published and presented on a number of topics, including cognitive behavioral therapy, school-based mental health, and neurocognitive oriented psychological assessment. He's published numerous books and co-authored numerous books in the field of psychology and education, including anxiety disorders in the classroom, an action plan for identification, evaluation, and intervention, building professional competencies uh, in school psychology, and guide to early psychological assessment with children and adolescents. Uh, Dr. Christner has also been acknowledged for his professional and clinical work. He has been presented with um, the uh, Lincoln Intermediate School Psychologist of the Year Award, uh, as well as the Pennsylvania School Psychologist of the Year Award. So welcome, Dr. Christner. We really appreciate it. Oh, and I should say also host of psych to practice podcast, which um, is fantastic as well. Well, thank you. And yes, that's kind of the new endeavor. Um, so, you know, I thanks for having me. I'm I'm really honored. I as I shared with you, 
Um, you know, you, I've listened to your podcast for a while. So you were my introduction to psychology podcasts. So uh, it's awesome to be part of uh, your show. And, uh, you know, I, I love the fact of disseminating information to clinicians and what, what a great resource. So thank you for having me. So I, I, we're okay to get started talking a little bit about cognitive therapy. So I, um, you know, I was trying to think what we could present tonight in the time frame that we have. And I thought maybe kind of uh, the, the area we would kind of focus on is really kind of some of the new trends that we're seeing. So um, we have written a lot on cognitive therapy in schools over the years, and we're actually in process of writing the third edition of our CBT in schools book and updating with all the new information mainly because some of the changes that we've seen with uh, the increase in mental health needs in kids. So, uh, you know, it's, this is exciting, an exciting time to kind of be doing some new work. Uh, before we talk about um, actual CBT, just some disclosures. I do obtain royalties and have financial interests in uh, some of the companies that I do work for uh, and just want to make that uh, kind of not acknowledged. So I, I want to start tonight talking a little bit about um, how we get focused with CBT. And one of the things that um, we've learned over time with CBT is that we have to find good ways to um, kind of have an entry point for interventions. And so just to kind of step back, my, my training was originally in um, Beckian cognitive therapy. So I trained uh, with Aaron Beck and with Art Freeman in Philadelphia many years ago. Um, and since that time, we've seen some, some evolution in um, how we think about the connection of thoughts and behaviors and feelings. And so years ago, there were, were diagrams of we had an activating event and someone had a thought. And then from that thought, it would initiate basically our feelings or our reactions. And what we've kind of learned over time in, in research is that while at times that's true, my guess most of us have had kids that we've worked with who definitely reacted before they thought. Um, that there, that sequence isn't as linear as we initially thought it would be. And over years, we started looking at different ways that we could um, could kind of diagram this and look at different variables that come into play when a child or an adult or, or any individual really has some type of a, a problem, a mental health difficulty. And so we really kind of have distilled this down to looking at the fact that there are four components that um, we think about in cognitive therapy. And I'll kind of walk through these, but essentially we refer to this as being multi-directional, that at any time, these, these different areas can influence each other. So, you know, going through the, the areas, cognitive, um, affective or physiological, behavioral, and the newest one we've added is social. And, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But at any time, we could have a social situation that could put our cognition or our thoughts into a negative frame that can then change our emotions. That men, then when our emotions change, it may change how we interact with individuals and change our behaviors. And that there's this kind of constant interaction that's going back and forth. And 
when we're thinking about interventions with kids, we really need to look at where's the best way or the best place to intervene at a given time. So I want to walk through just kind of each of these um, uh, uh, just for a little bit. And so our, our, we're going to start with social factors. And as I mentioned, this is kind of the new piece to the model that we're uh, working on currently and is actually going to be part of our, uh, our new book coming out and also some work that we're doing with what's called relational cognitive behavior therapy, which is this idea of how connection with individuals influences change. And so when we think about social um, factors, you know, we, we have to keep in mind like early experiences, um, they shape the way we view the world. Um, so we've learned a lot about how trauma inf influences, but even just simple social situations, um, you know, what about the child who has been bullied in school or what about the child that feels that they're invisible in school? Those early kind of social situations and early events can kind of shape further um, areas. The other thing that we look at is how psychosocial situations um, can contribute or exacerbate thoughts. And um, the example I, I often give is one of the young guys that I used to work with. Um, you know, he, he was a, a kid who was fairly anxious. And if in the morning the teacher greeted him in a certain way, he had a much more positive frame throughout the day. But if for some reason she was busy for a second or she, instead of greeting him first, she went to someone else, that situation actually contributed him to thinking she was mad at him, that, that that actual interaction influenced the way he thinks and behaves. The last piece is that the word connection. And this is really where we're focusing a lot of our work. And you know, on our podcast, we, we've had a few different guests in the last uh, couple of months that were talking about things like suicide prevention and cyberbullying and violence in schools and those types of things. And one of the, the key factors that we hear from all of these experts is that the lack of connectedness has such an impact on kids. And, and we know, we've known that. That's not new information. But we're seeing it more and more. And I think COVID really, um, I think it opened our eyes. We thought you know, these interactions online were going to maybe replace social interaction for, for some. But in reality, that's not what happened. Um, we, you know, we know afterward, while that maybe helped a little bit, the actual in-person interactions were so important in that connected piece. So we're really working on interventions on how do we build connectedness with kids and how does that look therapeutically, whether that's working in groups in schools or connecting them with another individual in the school, maybe the, the, the front office staff, maybe the uh, custodian, someone who can connect with that child has such a resilience factor. Um, and so we're really kind of looking at that, that work and really focusing on that. The other area or the second area is um, cognitive factors and those that are that are experienced in cognitive behavior therapy. Um, this isn't new. Uh, this this information's been around since you know the fifties, and while we've seen maybe some some small changes, uh, this idea that 
we have to pay attention to the thoughts that individuals have. And really in cognitive therapy, we, we talk often about three levels of thoughts, um, automatic thoughts, which are those things that we have nonstop that are going through our mind. They're automatic, whether they're words or images, but they, they're just habitual, they're reflexive. They, they happen really quickly. When we're working with kids, this is often where we're gonna focus our interventions on automatic thoughts because they're a little easier to recognize than some of the deeper levels. Um, so the other levels we talk about are intermediate beliefs, which are more those um, core, those conditional attitudes. Maybe someone who thinks they're terrible at math or they're, they're never going to be able to go to college. It's very school specific, but maybe they feel they're a great athlete or they're great in other areas. Those intermediate beliefs are really about a certain situation. It really is situationally driven. And then deeper than that are our core beliefs. And our, our core beliefs really are those fundamental kind of absolute thoughts that we have about ourself, um, that no one will ever care for me or whatever that thought might be. It's that deeper foundation. When we work with um, adolescents and adults, a lot of times we'll, we'll work on those intermediate beliefs and core beliefs um, more frequently. But as I said, with kids, staying at that automatic level really is uh, sometimes the mo most helpful. When we have cognitive factors, the other piece that we look at are uh, how those factors become dysfunctional and how those cognitions become dysfunctional. And the two ways we separate those are um, cognitive deficiencies and cognitive distortions. And so when we talk about cognitive deficiencies, those are things like maybe poor um, self-monitoring of our thoughts or poor inhibition skills, or it's a, it's a skill deficit essentially that we see that affects our thinking. Maybe it's a child who's impulsive that, that, again, they react before they really think through a situation. Those are areas that we're going to teach different skills uh, to help build those, those cognitive deficiencies. On the cognitive distortion side, with cognitive distortions, they're just ways that we have misguided processing of our thoughts. Um, there's many uh, writings out there about different cognitive distortions that, that are are out there, but it could be something simple as black and white thinking, or someone who it's you know very all or nothing, um, or they catastrophize their thoughts. It's not that they have a deficiency, but they've kind of gone down a negative path with some of the thoughts and beliefs they have. At that deeper level, those dis those distortions are referred to often as dysfunctional beliefs, but it's really that that kind of same concept. It's these negative filters that we put into situations. When we're working with kids in school, you know, a lot of times if we see someone with anxiety or depression, we're gonna be looking at those cognitive distortions. We're gonna look at that, the distorted thinking. A lot of times when we see kids that are more behaviorally driven, um, maybe kids that have anger problems, we'll likely see both. We'll see those cognitive deficiencies and cognitive distortions together. And there's actually been a lot of research on that that's, that's proven that out quite a bit. The 
Next area I want to talk about is affective and physiological um, aspects. So in time, we've kind of moved away from just talking about emotions um, and emotional responses and really trying to understand the physiology. And I wish I had eight hours to just talk about this part because I think that the, the research is so interesting. But I'm just going to kind of bring up a few different um kind of things that individuals can uh, on their own look into. But the world of neuroscience has really um, helped us understand emotions in general. And some of the research is what we call embodied cognitions, that this idea that we can't um, separate the emotions and their their, uh, basically physical manifestation in our body, that our emotions ride throughout our whole system. Um, also, interception, which is um, really how our nervous system um, pays attention to our senses. And it, we refer to it, to it as um, basically emotional maps, this mapping that occurs through our body about unconscious and um, conscious thoughts and feelings that will elicit certain emotions. Polyvagal theory is another area that uh, we try to get people to, to learn a little bit about and to understand. And the work in traumas really um, brought some of that work to light. Um, you know, there are some criticisms about polyvagal theory, but um, there are some pieces that we really should understand, at least from how individuals react in fight or flight and that the initiation of the autonomic nervous system. And then one of the areas that I'm kind of the most interested in now is what's referred to as affective primes. And this is probably new for a lot of um, people. It's not really new research. It's been around about, oh gosh, I'm going to think probably about 20 years now. Uh, But it is by a gentleman called, his name's Jack Pangsep. And Jack Pangsep basically has researched these primitive aspects of our, our emotions and feelings. And he started all of his work working specifically with animals um, and his work has evolved in kind of how that plays out in, in humans as well. And um, interestingly, he has come down in his research that we only have about seven affective primes or seven emotional experiences. And this is something that's really kind of interesting. And and every time I present and say this, I usually get a few uh, emails that are, are not kind. But, um, you know, a lot of times you go into schools and we see offices that have feeling charts, um, 101 feelings. Um, and when we look at all of those, it, you know, it distills down these emotional reactions so much, they really don't serve a good intervention purpose. And when we really look at the, in, the the neuroscience aspects of it, if we can actually get kids to really understand those seven affective primes, those seven pieces, and really for young kids, we're really going to really focus on, on six of them. So what Jack Panksepp's work showed is that our emotions fall into the categories, and he uses words that I'm going to kind of, I'll, I'm going to give you a, a simpler definition, but his, the first affective prime is rage, um, which essentially is anger, um, you know, pretty simple connection. His second is panic slash grief. 
And that actually is our sadness feeling. That's our, our sad, sad emotion. Fear equals anxiety. Um, he uses the term play. And play is referred to as social joy. Um, and again, we're, you know, we're tying this connection stuff back into our work in CBT. And part of it is that we know that good connection actually creates this feeling, these, these joyful feelings, not, not only from uh, what we're describing the emotions, but how we feel them internally. Um, he also uses the word seeking and seeking is expectancy, that kind of desire to, or that excitement that we want to, to find. Um, caring, how we care or nurture other people um, is also an effective crime. And the last one that we don't really talk a lot about with kids is this idea of lust and the idea that it's a, it's a physical reaction we have to other people in a romantic way as we get older. And again, that's not necessarily one we're going to chat about in, in school counseling, but part of what his, his effective crime work um, has, has talked about. So it's kind of interesting work that we really can kind of distill down information about emotions. And one of the things that I um, have done in, in the last probably 10 years since I've been following this work is when I work with kids, I really only work on those core emotions. We really try to stay within those areas. And what we've seen from an outcome is they become much better experts on those few emotions and can recognize them and work through them much easier than when we try to separate them out and have all of these different kind of labels for emotions. So we try to keep this effective piece in the in kind of a, a simpler term. The last area uh, on when we talk about this multi-directional model is uh, behavior factors. And um, most of us have had probably a lot of education around uh, behavioral factors that that come into play with um, with kids. So things like classical conditioning and operant conditioning and all those things we learned in our early uh, behavioral classes in school um, are still you know part of how we have to think and conceptualize and understand kids. Some of the things that we, have moved toward a, a little further is looking at things like motivation as a behavioral factor um, and also looking at skill deficits behaviorals, behaviorally. So there are some kids that maybe part of our interventions are intervening with building communication skills or building social skills or helping them learn how to build connections and relate with other people. Those would be all those behavioral factors. So when we think about this kind of multi-directional model, um, the reason we break it up like this is that with all kids, there are, we may have a different way that we're going to intervene, even if they have a similar problem. And we're going to talk about case conceptualization in a few minutes, but there are some kids that we really do need to start at this affective level. We, got, we need to have them understand their emotions and the physiology that maybe they're going into panic and we're not gonna talk through their problem if their panic's really high. We need to bring that physiology down. And then there might be other kids that we're gonna target more that behavioral piece or the cognitive piece. The, the reason we looked at this multi-directional model is really for us to, to not just go 
let's ask a kid how they're thinking. That's not good cognitive behavior therapy. It is really kind of meeting the, the child where they're at. And what's the right entry point for intervention? What can we do that's going to give us the most outcome? So we can enter at any of these levels. Ultimately, through our work, we're probably going to touch on all of them. Um, but we can start really dependent on where, where that child's at. So out of that model, um, there's a lot of new work in CBT that I'm I'm not sure how much um, people are aware of because it really is kind of a kind of new topics, and the, this new kind of phase in in cognitive behavior therapy is what's being referred to as a transdiagnostic approach, which essentially is that through research over the years we found that there are very specific interventions that work across different diagnoses. That this idea that treating somebody with anxiety is that much different than somebody with anger or that somebody with depression um, is really kind of a fallacy that really we can use very similar interventions across areas. And so the movement in cognitive therapy right now has been looking at this idea of transdiagnostic approaches. So we know that there's high levels of comorbidity with mental health. Um, those of you that work with kids, um, there's not a kid that's just purely depressed and they don't get anxious at times, or maybe they're not irritable or they have anger that, that comes along with it. We'll oftentimes see, uh, see comorbid disorders. And rather than trying to tease out what treatment for what problem, we're really kind of looking at this fact that we can kind of cut across um, all disorders with very similar interventions. The other piece of it is that there's a common set of principles and procedures that can apply to all disorders. So when we look at some of the research in uh, transdiagnostic approaches, we will see the same intervention that is effective across a wide variety of conditions. And this isn't only with kids. So when we're looking at these transdiagnostic approaches, the research really goes throughout the, the lifespan. We're seeing that we can use very similar techniques. So as a, from a training standpoint, um, you know, I, I remember being a doc student and learning all of these different techniques and all of all the the different ways that we need to treat different disorders. And it became very overwhelming that how am I going to know all of these, these techniques and when to use what? And what the research is showing is that we just have to understand what the core principles are and those common kind of underlying factors. And we can really use it across different difficulties. Um, we're finding this works exceptionally well in schools um, when most of our, our children that are receiving some type of an emotional of emotional support, um, we're going to have kids that maybe have different uh, difficulties and we need to really streamline our interventions. Um, the other piece is that treatment for one disorder generates the improvements for another disorder. Um, so basically, if you had a child who would had depression and they happened to be in a group for anxiety, we saw improvements to 
their depression, um, that it's not these two separate things that we really, again, it's, we're seeing kind of changes in, in both. And then back to um, what we talked a little bit about with this, the idea of affect is that really the, the, the neuroscience that's out there is showing that all emotional disorders or mental health conditions are sharing the same neurobiological mechanisms. And this is complex research. Um, like when you, when you start reading it, I find like I'm reading it three or four times to get a grasp of, of how it's applicable. But it's important to know that we're really finding that there's this dysregulation in um, basically our in inhibition of the amygdala. And we're seeing it across all conditions. And there's a lot of research that is continuing in this area. But knowing that, again, it helps us really kind of hone in what our, our interventions uh, will be. So when we talk about transdiagnostic approaches, um, there are two different schools of thought under transdiagnostic approaches. One is referred to as unified approaches or unified protocols. And um, this is, uh, I think, kind of newer in in the transdiagnostic research, at least new, newer to me. Um, but essentially with unified approaches, there are many researchers that have come up with kind of a, a one-size-fits-all type of approach that we have programs that have been developed, and I'll share a little bit about those in a second, that we can use the same program for a range of conditions, um, that we're targeting those underlying shared mechanisms. So we have what we call modules, basically the skill areas that we're gonna teach, um, and that it's used for one group of disorders. So we may have, um, you know, everything all in, in one, anxiety, depression, eating disorders. And also we can use it in these kind of more overall programs that are just emotional disorders in general. Um, we started looking at this in schools specifically as school psychologists consulting in maybe emotional support programs or emotional and behavioral support programs that can we teach a core set of skills that would be therapeutically beneficial to, to the kids. The other area in transdiagnostic approaches are what are referred to as in individual modular approaches. And this has been something I've been following for a number of years. And um, my first introduction to it was by a researcher named Bruce Chorpita. And Bruce Chorpita um, has, has done continual work in this area, but essentially found that um, there are modules based on different research of treatments that are specific to certain types of kids with certain problems. So rather than this one size fits all model, the individual modular approach is more of a what size fits you model. So we're really kind of tailoring to speci the specific presentation of the problem. Um, we're gonna target individual modules in a, a really specific sequence that's based on the child. So. Going back to that multi-directional model that I, I went through pretty quickly, um, 
those are our decision points, right? That's that entry point. And once we have it, we can create a sequence based on how we conceptualize the problem uh, with, with a student that we're working with. Um, so treatments based on case conceptualization and using our clinical judgment and data to help drive treatment and help drive interventions. Um, this isn't anything different than most school psychologists and those working in, in schools on behavior um, are doing on a daily basis. Uh, we're, we're tracking goals, we're looking at data to make sure that we're seeing progress um, and making sure that we're, we're on the right track, that our interventions are actually working. And when we look at this, uh, this modular approach, it's used really for any kind of difficulty um, on all levels. It can be done group-wise. It can be done uh, like one group at a time, meaning like somebody with anxiety. It can be done individually. Um, those that have multiple diagnoses, there's a lot of ways to use it. So I want to step back to that unified protocol approach. And when we see these two models, as I've worked with school districts over the last few years, one of the things we're really um, trying to, to do is look at um, what's the best way to train and help people obtain knowledge to use these interventions. And this unified approach, um, for those that are new to counseling, maybe who haven't, they haven't been doing, you know, counseling or therapy work in schools, and they're looking to expand their role, and they want to get more experience, these unified approaches are really helpful to do that because it spells out exactly what you need to do for certain groups of kids. Um, I jokingly say it's kind of like it's like the whisk of therapy. Um, it tells you what to say, when to say it, how to sequence it. Um, and it, it gets you where you need to go. The other piece is these unified protocols, um, I think are really useful if we're doing tier one, tier two interventions, if we're doing an MTSS process, um, we can do these school-wide. Um, in fact, we're going that's one area that I'm, I'm really interested in right now is we have this research to say these, and I'm going to tell you the eight here in a second, but these eight areas that if we, if we teach kids that have any emotional problem, these eight skills, our chance for successful intervention is high. If we know that for those who already have a condition, why are we not doing a better job of teaching those before the condition happens in the first place. Um, so, you know, I, I love the fact that they're effective treatments and the data is wonderful, but there are certain things we we really need to, to kind of focus on different. Um, I had a conversation with a, a friend and colleague of mine, Steve Shaw, who's up in, uh, in Canada, and we were talking about, you know, what's the one thing that we, um, we think kids should, um, should have to learn, like, what's the one skill? And he said, self-monitoring. Like, we really should start kids to learn to self-monitor as young as we can get them to learn to self-monitor, not just from a behavioral standpoint, but how much different if kids could self-monitor their own emotional regulation and understand their emotions at a young age, what's that long-term impact? So these unified protocols 
I think we're going to see more um, uh, more about them over time in school settings. They're f- fairly big and well written in the uh, clinical worlds, but they're really just starting to surface in in school psychology. We're we're just starting to do some work in that now. Um, the other area is the fact that we can use these in a classroom setting. So my first introduction to doing this type of transdiagnostic approach was as a school psychologist that spent a half day in an emotional support program for kids that had um, some type of emotional or behavioral disturbance. And I didn't have the time or resources that I could do individual work with all of them. And this was a really great way for me to have a set type of program in place that really has some good outcomes to it. So they can easily be done in the classroom. Um, when I did it, uh, I, don't, I don't do that work currently, but when I when I was doing it, um, you know, we had the teachers co-facilitate so that they could reinforce those skills for the other four and a half days that I wasn't there. And again, we saw some really nice outcomes with, with kids by doing that. The, um, so I mentioned the eight modules. So most of this work comes from a, a few different groups of individuals. Um, David Barlow is part of all of those groups. David Barlow is a clinical psychologist up in the Boston area um, who has done incredible work in cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and this unified protocol came up with basically eight modules that we uh, work through. So things like how do we build and keep motivation um, with kids? Um, how do we know our, get to know our emotions and our behavior? So essentially that's self-monitoring. Um, teaching kids how to do emotional behavioral experiments. How do we expose them to things that they're not comfortable doing? Um, awareness of physical sensations. So again, understanding that physiology, knowing when our emotions are getting triggered, being flexible in our thinking. So that's the cognitive piece in this. Uh, Awareness of emotional experiences, um, situational emotional exposure. So this is now generalization. So one of the things we know about therapy is that where we tend to fail is we don't generalize it to real world settings. And if we're not doing that, therapy will never be effective. So we have to have some action and that's the part of that module. Um, And then really having kids pay attention to their accomplishments and teaching them how to look forward and plan ahead, essentially goal setting. So these are what they're called, those are the names um, I have the reference there for uh, the, the book that they, that they have done with children and adolescents. Definitely worth a read. Uh, there is a clinician manual and also a, um, a, a client workbook that you can use some of the resources out of, um, but really kind of a beneficial um, process. When we look at um, this other part, this modular approach, This is what, again, we're kind of doing that takes a little bit more clinical skills. So I wouldn't suggest people who have never done cognitive therapy jump in and start trying to do modular therapy. It would become overwhelming really quickly. Um, But for those who are 
um, seasoned and want to kind of advance their skills. This is really a kind of a, a new area to kind of to go through. Um, it all starts with case conceptualization, how we understand individual kids and do interventions specifically um, for, uh, for that individual. How do we sequence that's the right approach for them? What's interesting, and this is the work that I do more clinically now, uh, most of my work is now outpatient. And um, what's interesting is when we do this type of an approach, what used to be sometimes 20 to 30 sessions of therapy, when we've utilized this approach and looked at case conceptualization, um, we're actually seeing kids somewhere between eight and 14 sessions before we discharge them. So almost cut our number of sessions in half. In the middle of a mental health crisis, that's really important. Um, you know, so I currently um, have, I think probably my next counseling appointment is 2024 availability wise. So it's um, when we have so many people in need, being able to have more efficient interventions with the same outcomes important. Um, we mainly do this with individuals. We can modify it for groups, but that is really, uh, I think, a skill that takes a lot more time uh, to develop. It's definitely something, if we're gonna do groups, I would focus more on those unified protocols. So when we talk about this individual piece, and we'll kind of talk about some, some ways we do interventions individually. Um, we have to start with case conceptualization. And I don't, um, we're not going to have time to go through a whole uh, piece about case conceptualization. Um, we did just recently do, um, on our podcast, just did two episodes specifically on how to do case conceptualization, um, because it was something that people were, were kind of interested in that of our listeners. Um, but when, when we talk about case conceptualization, we're really trying to just understand that person and help us use information to guide treatment. Um, years ago, when I was uh, doing my training, um, I, I read an article that's super old, and I, I actually love old articles. I think they teach me so much. And um, it was an article from 1967, and it was written by a, a clinical psychologist um, named Gordon Paul, and probably no one's heard of him. It's not He's not someone who's out there in the field uh, a lot. Uh, he's done, done some interesting work, but it's not a name that comes up often. But in this article, he wrote a, a, a statement, and the statement was, and again, he's, he's talking from a clinical standpoint, but his, his comment was, it's more important to understand the patient who has a disorder than it is to understand what disorder a patient has. And I, I, I love that comment. Right? When I read it, I was like, wow, like we can apply this to anything. And the idea of case conceptualization is just that. It's more important to understand the student or the kid or the parent or whoever we want to put in there that's having a problem not the problem that the person has. And sometimes we get very driven by trying to understand the problem and we miss the person that has it. Case conceptualization is really kind of the way we try to, to understand that. And we've done kind of a lot of work in that area. Again, I'll, I'll kind of reference back to our podcast. 
Um, we've tried to come up with some different ways to help clinicians organize the different areas that we look at. Um, but the, the, the general idea is you just want to know who the person is that uh, you're working with. Um, for those who are interested in case conceptualization, we do have a, a case conceptualization worksheet that we use that um, helps organize information. Uh, at the end of the presentation, my email's on there. If you email me, I'd be happy to send send it to you. I do need you to email because it's a copyrighted form. I just have to keep track of who actually has the, the actual copies of it. But please feel free to, to just shoot me a message and I'll get that to you. When we're talking about individual modules, um, Again, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things that we can look at. When we look at anxiety, depressive, and disruptive behaviors, those are kind of the areas that they divide into. Um, you know, on the slides here, you'll see there's a lot, of different, um, a lot of different things listed. But if you look across the different um, sections or the different areas, you'll see that very similar interventions are effective across all disorders. Um, so we're not seeing, you know, this great dif differences in what we're going to do. The sequence may be a little different. So sometimes, so we know with things like anxiety disorders, exposure is extremely important and doing that early on and getting kids into those exposure situations are really important. That's going to come up at a, a faster rate in our treatment than somebody who maybe has depression um, or who has a behavioral disorder. So the sequence is different, but the skill sets are essentially the same. So I want to take just the last maybe five minutes and talk a little bit about interventions. Um, and, you know, I wish, again, we could talk about a whole bunch of different things that are out there. But um, I want to talk a little bit about just some different ways to introduce cognitive therapy to kids. And, you know, so um, one of the, the ways that we do it is through metaphor and having kids talk about um how the same situation might get different emotions. And um, this is not something I created. I, I kind of wish I did, but um, back in, uh, gosh, the 70s, there was an article um, that was written um, that was about an individual who was walking down the road and stepped in basically dog crap, essentially, is what it was. Um, and it, it goes on to talk about what are our thoughts that happen if we experience that. Now, reality is probably everybody has had an experience like that. They've done something like that. Um, but, you know, our first response is, oh, crap, or whatever. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that it goes down a negative path. The reality is most of us might be upset about it. We might go in the house and wash off our shoe or whatever it is, but it doesn't ruin our day. But we may have a child or an adult or someone who maybe is prone to anxiety. And when it happens to them, they it's what they say after, oh crap, in their mind that matters. Like, oh crap, you know, is am I gonna smell all day or, Am I going to get sick from this or whatever it might be? 
And someone with depression might go into a different mindset and be thinking, you know, oh crap, you know, this, this happens to me all the time. I'm always the person that, you know, and whatever it might be. And it might sabotage their whole day. So with kids, we'll oftentimes tell the story. We'll say, you're on your way to school and somebody didn't clean up after their dog and this happened. What goes through your head? I will tell you, there is nothing better to motivate a kid in therapy, therapy than to talk about a dog crapping. They all get excited about it. They laugh. They think it's funny. Um, and all of a sudden, you have some street cred as a therapist that you can connect with them. It, it works every time. Um, but it's such a great tool. It's something that we can then kind of talk through and say, what do you think somebody would that really has a hard time controlling their anger? What would that person think in that situation? And you can go into all different uh, conversations. I've had kids that we took an entire session going through all the different scenarios that could happen, but it's just teaching them the fact that their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors connect. There are other ways to do it. Um, some of the ways we do it now is we'll also use just whiteboards. Um, we refer to it as socializing to therapy. Um, essentially, that we draw a picture of a stick figure because that's about as good as my artistic skills get. Um, and I draw a stick figure with a thought bubble. Um, I oftentimes start with a child sitting with a present, and that's how we will we'll start off. But the example I have here, I've this is my best dog that I can draw. Um, so I have a child with a dog and we'll, um, I always call the guy Oscar, but we might say something like, you know, so let's talk about the situation. What's happening to Oscar right now? And they may say a dog's walking up to them and we'll go through and say, okay, so a dog's walking up to Oscar. What might he think? Um, and so he might think, look at the cute puppy. Okay. If Oscar thinks, look at the cute puppy, how do you think that makes Oscar feel? Most kids will say it's a happy emotion um, or they're, they're excited or whatever it might be. And then what do you think Oscar is going to do? Um, most will say he'll, he'll pet the puppy. I then just erase out the thought bubble and the faces and usually we'll then go through and say, you know what, that's actually not what Oscar thought. Like the dog came up to Oscar and Oscar actually thought that dog looks like he's going to bite me. If Oscar thinks that, how's that change how he feels? Um, and kids as young as four can come up with this alternate um, feeling and thought. It, it, it Developmentally, we've extended, we have had some success even with some um, average or better um, three-year-olds that could actually go through this. So it's it's something they can, can recognize. But they would say, he's afraid. What's he going to do? He's going to run. So you can create any pictures that you want. Um, I, I oftentimes tell the story. We, I, I actually had an artist do a bunch of, uh, of pictures like this for me, and we thought we were going to, to sell them to, to everyone and have this nice workbook. And what we found was the pre-drawn pictures don't work. Um, they don't work at all. And part of it was we started videotaping ourselves and I'm kind of a little bit of a goofball in therapy. So if ever, if any kids talk to each other, I would be like called out a hundred times, but I draw the same 15 pictures, every single kid that comes into my office. 
but no one knows that. So my whiteboard's blank and I go, oh, what am I going to draw today? What do, let me think, what are we going to do? And I spend about 10 seconds kind of trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I ultimately draw a kid with a present next to him. That's what I draw every single time. But what happens is that when we did it on the worksheets, the kids didn't connect to us as therapists and they could have cared less about the worksheet, didn't matter. The fact that I engaged them in just the, that they thought I was being unique to their situation um, actually got buy-in. So I have boxes of pictures sitting in a storage room that no one will ever see because they just don't work. Um, we got to connect with kids. Um, so just a couple other things real quick. Um, use pop culture. Um, you know, we oftentimes will take pictures of a kid's into sports, grab a picture of the athlete they see. And, you know, so the picture here is of Kevin Love. Um, and so, you know, we'll say, okay, what's Kevin Love thinking in this, in this picture? And, you know, they'll come up with whatever thought it might be. And then we'll change it. We'll say, what do you think Kevin Love would look like? Like now he looks like, oh, I'm pumped up. I'm going to, yeah, I'm doing great. What would he do if he would, if his thought was, oh, I suck at basketball or I'm never going to make the next basket. Like, how's that change what he does? Um, I use people that, uh, I love using people that are advocates for mental health. Um, Kevin Love is that. If uh, you ever, uh, he talks a lot about being in therapy and, how that's actually changed his life, uh, which is also being a good role model for, for kids. Um, some others, I had a kid from Catholic school, um, so I started pulling pictures of the Pope, um, which sounds really not like a therapeutic tool at all, um, but he loved it. Um, one of the things we talked about is Pope Francis actually um, it went to therapy himself, and he's very open about the fact how therapy helped him. So, you know, we, you know, this picture was, you know, we were making up things like, what if the Pope was thinking, oh, look at that kid. I don't want that family to come next to me. Like, how's he going to behave? Like, how's that going to change things? Um, so it's just a little quote about the Pope's experience with uh, treating his anxiety, which again is kind of helpful. And then also using kind of new trends. You know, Wednesday was a huge thing everywhere. Um, I loved it. I don't know if anybody else watched it. So we, we actually have, I used to watch Wednesday as a psychologist first and then for entertainment because I used to write all these things of how I could use it in therapy. Um, and there was a ton, not only from her social interactions, but other characters and the experiences they were going through. Um, so again, use kind of that, those pop culture references. Um, so there are a lot of topics we won't have time to go into those, but some things that you, you can kind of just think through. Um, everything is, is available. Um, one of the uh, therapists who I follow, who I think does this great work is Sandy Pimentel, who's uh, up at Montefiore Hospital in New York. And uh, Sandy did a presentation not too long ago, how to put the Cardi B in CBT, which is the best title of any workshop I've ever uh, heard. Um, but is it about that? It's a, that idea of how do we put pop culture in. Um, so just some other things, um, you know, thought records, things of that nature, um, kids that are into Star Wars, we talk about Jedi thinking, 
Um, so you can pull in a lot of their, their interests. This is where that case conceptualization helps, helps us understand what to pull from them. Um, and then uh, also, you know, I, I think Lizzo is a great person to talk about in therapy. We talk about her all the time with a lot of the girls I work with. Um, just because she's done, she's, she makes some really great comments. Um, one of my favorite is um, she tweeted a few years ago this idea of boss up and change your life, um, which is what she tells herself. That's kind of what she says to herself every day. That's her kind of mantra. Um, so I work with kids all the time about what's your mantra? Like, how do you boss up? How do you get that motivation? Um, help that self-talk a little bit. And then the last piece um, is exposure. And with exposure, there's so many fun ways in therapy that we can do this. Um, you know, I hate therapy games, but I love games in therapy. Um, I don't think therapy games do a whole lot, um, but give me Jenga and help me do something with a kid that gets them exposed to what makes them frustrated. Um, that's helpful. Uh, games like perfection with young kids. Um, we do karaoke in my office. We do improv. We do all kinds of things. We have them go around. Um, on any given day, you may see a kid's artwork all over our office because maybe we make them draw the worst picture in the world to see how many people might criticize their picture to expose them to that fear of they have to be per perfect all the time. Um, they're exposure things. They're just really uh, wonderful ways to do it. Again, we've actually done some of our podcast episodes about how to use just everyday things. Um, we've created therapy exposures out of paper towel rolls before. I mean, there's, there's a ton of ways you can do it. So just some ideas. Uh, I mentioned Psych to Practice podcast. Um, some of the things that I talked about, there's some deeper kind of discussions on that, please feel free to, to check those out. Um, and most of this stuff is in the book that I wrote on cognitive behavioral interventions in educational settings. So uh, feel free to uh, check that out. That has most of these interventions in that book as well. So thank you. I, was, I hope that maybe kind of helps. <laughs> that was Amazing. I loved it. And I'm so, you know, sort of philosophically aligned with everything you were saying about the trans diagnostic approaches and, um, and doing, you know, sort of this almost positive preventative CBT with kids, no matter what's going on for them or for a group of them. And I wonder what you think my immediate question about it is, in schools, how would you say that that those trans diagnostic approaches differ from really good evidence-based social emotional learning and or positive psychology, like resilience yeah. um, training or something like that? Yeah, so it, it's a that's a good question. Um, I haven't done anything to compare them completely um, in that, you know, it, I'll be honest, some of the social emotional learning programs I believe are overcomplicated. Um, we have a lot of stuff in there that doesn't really pan out. So when we look at the research, uh, we end up showing, we end up doing research on programs versus on 
research on interventions. And so we have all of these things that we're trying to teach kids, and we don't know that all of them are necessary. When we talk about these transdiagnostic approaches, um, I mentioned Bruce Chorpita. Years ago, he did some inner, he did some research that was called treatment distillation. And what that essentially was, was he looked at all of these different studies to find out what were the core interventions that really worked. Like, let's stop adding all of these things. Um, and I don't know that we've done that well with social emotional learning. Um, you know, I, I think we, we have an idea and then somebody names it something different and they package it in one way or the other. And it, we, we don't really know what are the core, but maybe we do though. So I think what they've done in transdiagnostic studies are showing that these are the core things that work. If you go back and look at most of the social emotional learning programs that are out there, they have components of this. I think probably where the, the difference is, is do we need to be buying package programs or should we be looking at what are the core skills that we really need to teach kids and how can we do a better job of that? Um, I, again, probably not a popular comment, but I don't think we do a good job of it. Um, I think that mental health is not getting better, it's getting worse. Um, and why is that? We keep saying we have programs and we have all these things, but there's, there's a breakdown in how that's getting generalized out there to kids and to families and, and even to adults. And so I think we have to look different at it and, and maybe move away from some of these larger programs and really kind of let's hone in. You know, we've done it well with reading. Like if you talk about reading, we really know what works with reading, right? There's a scientific piece that we understand. Social, emotional pieces. I don't know that we've done that yet. Um, I think we're still, you know, we're still early in that game. I don't think they're, they're different though. All, all I would say is that this transdiagnostic approach, if you look at the, the programs that most schools use, some of it is likely in there somewhere. What I would like to see is let's take those pieces and let's expand them and intensify them and hit home really hard there and let's eliminate the stuff that's just wasting classroom time. That makes sense. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I know we're, we're out of time. Uh, we did have a couple of quick comments of people asking your thoughts on um, educational counseling versus psychotherapy and then um, effective therapy in the schools, thoughts on effective therapies in uh, educationally related mental health services. Yeah, so um, I think sometimes we try to make things so distinct that, again, we kind of get lost. Is it psychotherapy? Is it counseling? I don't know. We're helping kids. Um, at, at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. Um, I've lived in both worlds. Um, what I do clinically isn't really different than what I did when I worked in schools um, every day. It might've been on an IEP versus a treatment plan, but other than that, it does it didn't really change. So I, I don't know that they're, they're that different. Our goal is we have kids that need 
need help. And so we're targeting the same type of thing. Um, you know, I, I think old school psychotherapies where, you know, we, we think of some things that were more psychodynamic, that wouldn't have fit really into the school culture. But with most of the cognitive behavior therapies or some of the third waves like ACT and DBT, we're seeing all those. I mean, they're all part of the CBT family and they, um, they, they work really well in schools. I, I really think they're, they're fairly easy to implement. Um, in fact, I always tell people I see kids less outpatient than I used to in schools. I, I actually start to discharge as much faster with the same outcomes. Um, but in, in schools, I actually had better access, but for some reason, um, it seemed to be extended out longer. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see them as being that different. Um, I think there's, there's limits. I think there's things in school we shouldn't be addressing, um, that, that I don't think are appropriate, but, um, with, with the wait lists that are happening in the world right now, um, schools are, I think are going to see more and more of, of, of interventions they have to do. Um, our company actually runs school-based mental health programs with school professionals. So we, we use counselors, school counselors, school psychologists, school social workers. Um, we do have access to outpatient therapists that go in there, but our goal is really to, um, in a in a timely, efficient manner, be able to pr produce some of those interventions in school early. And then we take the outpatient when it goes beyond that. I don't know if I answered your whole question. But. Awesome. I know that we're wrapping up. I, I want to say, too, that I, I love you know, when you're talking about finding those core things. I think that that's you know important that we're using evidence-based strategies. And in schools, we're so limited for time. And that's like my whole, uh, like I see ineffective practices in instruction and just in schools in general, that there's so much time spent um, you know, transitioning from one task to the other and, and, and maybe using an ineffective uh, instructional technique over here and spending so much time reviewing the calendar every morning that, um, you know, it drives me crazy that I, I feel like if we could streamline schools and, and, and switch around some schedules and, and be more targeted in what we're focusing on, that we could make bigger gains in a shorter amount of time, you know, because right now there's just not enough time to get everything done because we're so ineffective at it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I wish I could say that's gotten better over my 28 years in the field, but I feel like it's the same word. It's the same thing now as it was then. But um, one thing I think is encouraging is, um, and again, this is kind of looking at what's out there outside of just school psychology research um, you know, there's this trend now for what's called ultra brief therapy um, and ultra brief therapy is one time a week, 15 minutes a day um, of therapy. It's done in primary care offices um, and the outcomes for a lot of problems are pretty incredible. Like, like it's a, like I go, wait a second, we don't need 20 sessions that are 50 minutes long. No, we don't. Um, what we do is we end up doing things that we maybe not don't need. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to help everybody, but I think we do have to start thinking about our times are all limited. So, 
you know, so I have part of my caseload that are only 20 to 30 minute sessions. Like that's all that we have. Um, and my outcomes and time are just as good with that group as it is with people that we see longer. The difference is maybe the problems that they have, but there's a lot of things we could do pretty quick. Um, I don't know. I could, this, I have no research on this. I just would think if we could find 15 minutes a day to teach kids these core things, maybe we'll make an impact. That, that would be my thought. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I want to look, yeah, I want to look at um, what's coming up on our schedule too, so we can let everybody who wants to tune in next. Um, I think on 4-2, we are talking about writing assessment with Dr. Harris again, so that will be really exciting. Um, and then I also wanted to mention, um, we had talked previously about doing a book study here on Schools Like Podcast. And so we're going to do um, Dr. McClure and Dr. Reed correctly. Is that? Yes. Okay. We'll make sure. Um, um, the Hacking Deficit Thinking book. So um, we have some tentative dates for that, and I'm going to post links and whatnot for that. But as uh, so, four sixteen, uh, six four, and six eighteen, um, kind of just a book study format where we're going to go through um, each of the chapters. So look for some some postings on that. I'm really excited. That'll be cool. But any uh, last questions, Rebecca and Eric? I know that you are counseling nuts so i'm sure you <laughs> yes uh, i just want to thank you again dr christner this has been awesome we could talk to you for you know uh, yes. an entire semester three hours Agreed. times uh -huh. a week but <laughs> apart from that we really do appreciate your time tonight this was really interesting i bet we'll have some follow-up questions for listeners that are tuning in Definitely. later if it's okay with you we can send them along would that be okay Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Shoot me an email or um, I, I'll keep track of your uh, Facebook feed if anyone puts them up there as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And Thank thanks you. everybody for tuning in tonight. It was a great conversation. Thank you.